Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, October the 14th, 2023. A couple of weeks ago, we did one of our weekly shows with the Los Angeles Times books critic uh, and my friend Bethann Patrick on upcoming nonfiction books that she thought were important. Uh, earlier this week, one of the books she suggested, an American uh, a, a book called... Um, American Gun, the true story of the AR-15. We did a show with the two authors, Cameron McQuirter and Zusha Ellinson. It's a really interesting book and um, an important one. And it's what one would have expected. The true story of the AR-15 is very much an American story, an appropriate uh, story for what they call an American gun. Another of the the books that... um, Bethann suggested she has exquisite taste, I think, both in literary and intellectual terms, is by guest is by my guest today, Dylan uh, Penningroth. Uh, he's a historian uh, at UC Berkeley. He's also involved with the law school. He has a new book out, very intriguing new book, Before the Movement, The Hidden History of Black Civil Rights, which might be thought of as a counterintuitive book. One uh, that comes to conclusions that many of us wouldn't expect. Dylan is joining us just over the bay from his home in Kensington, California. Uh, Dylan, would it be fair to describe this new book um, before the movement as counterintuitive? Do you think it its thesis surprises some people? Thank you for having me on. I, I think that, yes, it might surprise some people. Um, Usually when we think about African-American civil rights, we think of it in terms of what you might call a freedom struggle. And in fact, that is the way that black history in general tends to get written, which is that it's characterized by a constant struggle from slavery to freedom, from second-class citizenship to first-class citizenship. And most importantly, that black people were more or less alienated from law, that especially Southern courthouses, local sheriffs, courthouse officials were hostile to African-Americans, wouldn't uh, let them be educated, and that black people were generally ignorant and frightened of law. And so one of the first things that I try to establish in the book is just to show that black people were actually very deeply engaged with many important aspects of law. And they went to court. I've got Uh, 14,000 court cases of which 1,500 are from African-Americans. And I use those to try to tell a story that, as you say, is kind of counterintuitive. Thinking about an American gun, in an odd way, this is an American story. Uh, It's counterintuitive and I think controversial. Some people will be hearing this for the first time and thinking, is this guy somehow legitimizing... Uh, and the America of the 18th and particularly 19th century, that blacks had rights before they were freed as slavery. That's not really, I'm guessing, Dylan, what you're saying, though, is it? No, on the contrary. Uh, So what I'm saying is that during this period, 
the story that we know well is that African-Americans were blocked from having many kinds of rights. So we think about voting rights. That's absolutely true. African-Americans in the South were not allowed to vote. And if someone had showed up and tried to vote, uh, very often they would have been pushed back violently. Um, there were, of course, the segregated social spaces or things that whites decided to call social spaces, everything from water fountains to public schools. All of that is absolutely true. But what I think we miss when we focus on constitutional rights, on voting rights, on um, discrimination and uh, segregation, and especially on the criminal justice system, we lose sight of a lot of other parts of life that mattered just as much to Black people. So I'm thinking of things like marriage and divorce, property, contract, inheritance. We, we don't really spend much time thinking about Black people inheriting things around 1900, but in fact, that's a moment when there's an enormous transfer of wealth going on from the first generation where a large number of African-Americans own land, they get it after uh, the end of slavery through incredibly hard work. And it's at that moment, th that decade or so, when they begin to transfer it to their children. And there are all sorts of questions that arise. Who should get the property? And each family has to figure that out in their own way. And so, you know, my book is about stories like that. How did African-Americans navigate the law? And how did that that activity, that legal activity, shape the way that they dealt with each other. So if you if you think about it um, at the sort of 30,000 foot level, what my book is about, it's fundamentally a book that tries to put African-Americans at the center of the story rather than put race relations at the center of the story. So race is absolutely a part of the story that I tell, but I really wanted to make sure that black people's relationships with each other and how black people thought about the world around them, including law. I wanted that to be the beating heart of the book. Are you returning then, and maybe the word returning is the wrong word, are you returning legal agency to black Americans after, is this after the end of slavery? I know the book goes from the 1830s through to the uh, 1970s, but of course, slavery wasn't abolished until what the 1840s or 50s. 1865 is the end of slavery, absolutely. So, are you suggesting that even during slavery, uh, there was a hidden history of black civil rights, particularly in the South? There was, although during slavery, uh, enslaved people, of course, did not have rights. But what is so interesting about that period is that African-American enslaved people actually had privileges. That sounds like a kind of wishy-washy word, like what, what you know, good could privileges possibly do? Well, I'll give you an example from my own family. My great-great-uncle, uh, um, who was a, an enslaved person named Jackson Holcomb, and he lived in Southside, Virginia, in Cumberland County. This is a, a place that I heard a lot about growing up, um, family stories of one sort or another. But there was one in particular that stuck in my mind about how Jackson Holcomb had a boat. And toward the end of the Civil War, when 
um, General Robert E. Lee's soldiers had lost the Battle of Richmond and were fleeing through the woods. They passed by where he was, where he had his boat, and he ferried them across the Appomattox River. And when they got to the other side, the soldiers paid him. And I thought that that was a very strange ending to the story because, of course, they could have shot him and just taken the boat, um, but they didn't do that. And it struck me that there was something important going on in that story. It was kind of opening up a strange world for me. And the world that that opened up was a world of privileges where the privileges actually mattered a good deal. He couldn't have gone to court to defend it if he if the soldiers hadn't paid him. But the fact that the soldiers did pay him and the fact that so many white people in the sources that I've consulted did respect African-Americans' um, deals, deals that they made with African-Americans, and the fact that they respected African-Americans' possessions and treated them in many cases as property, that suggested to me that the world of privileges, which actually has a legal meaning, even under the Constitution, was a world that African-Americans were able to engage in and a world that they uh, met white people on. So they're, they're all participating in this, this world of law. And part of it is about rights, but a, an important part of it is about privileges. And so in 1865, what one of the biggest transformations is not that African-Americans suddenly get property and contract, it's that they suddenly get the right to property and contract. And that's very important, but it's not quite the same as suddenly stepping into the world of law. They had been there all along. And again, I don't want to put words into your mouth, uh, Dylan, but uh, I I'm guessing that the book is not some sort of get out of jail card for, for example, those white soldiers who, who paid your ancestor. Absolutely not. <clears throat> the reason that white people respected black people's uh, deals, which sometimes they would call contracts and their property, is because it benefited white people. That a lot of the slave economy, the, the economy of the South during slavery, was founded on a, a, a series of accommodations between slave owners and slaves. And one of them, one of the most important ones, had to do with how much money slave owners had to expend in maintaining the enslaved people. And so by allowing enslaved people to own property and make deals um, and earn property, they effectively shifted a, a good portion of the costs of running their businesses, which were plantations. You know, every plantation is a business. They took some of those costs and they put it onto the enslaved people themselves. So everything from good nutrition, you know, the, the food, the vegetables, um, the grain, the meat that it took to keep the labor force alive. A lot of that came from enslaved people's after hours work. Elder care, you know, today we think about social security and it, you know, these problems are still with us. Masters often um, took the opportunity to put much of the cost of elder care onto enslaved people rather than have to care for aging slaves themselves. So this is this is not a get out of jail car, a free card for 
um, for masters in any sense of the word. This was a system that was dedicated to exploiting African-Americans. But the point is that, and just to invoke uh, a name that, or a, a school of thought that comes up a lot, critical race theory, one of the key tenets of CRT is that progress for African-Americans in the world of civil rights is most likely to happen when it's also good for white people. And I think that the ownership of property by slaves, uh, African-Americans accumulation of property after slavery, their participation in local courts, all of that I think only happened because it was also beneficial to white people. We are speaking with Dylan Penningroth, the author of an interesting new book, very controversial book, at least on the surface, maybe the more you delve into it, uh, the more hidden the, the book becomes, or the more we dig into this hidden history, the, the less controversial it is uh, before the movement, the hidden history of black civil rights. Um, Dylan, I've always been taught as a amateur historian that, um, that, that America had a choice in the 19th century between the slave economy and the capitalist economy, the market economy. But from what you're saying, you you're seem to be suggesting that, that they, in an odd way, that they coexisted and that they were tangled together. Is that fair? It's even more than that. <clears throat> Many of my colleagues in the field of, of uh, U.S. history have been showing for quite some time uh, that slavery was not only deeply entangled with capitalism, but that it was a market-oriented system. It was not anti-capitalist, it was capitalist through and through. My colleague, Caitlin Rosenthal, has shown how many modern uh, business accounting practices actually come out of uh, slave owners' efforts to make money. So this is, this is something that's even, I would put it even more strongly, it's not coexistence. They are making money and they are engaged deeply in the market and they treat their enslaved people as um, a workforce and and this is one of the um the insidious things about slavery they treat enslaved people as capital assets collateral for loans um, things that can be traded and moved around that's one of the things that makes enslaved people so valuable um, compared with free people yeah, we did a show, and I'm, I'm looking it up now as we speak, on uh, Wall Street support for slavery. Um, I, I guess it seemed odd at the time, but it makes sense in terms of your theory, at least. Sure. It, <clears throat> Wall Street uh, was, was deeply, deeply invested in the system of slavery. I, I come from Princeton, New Jersey, um, and the most famous person, at least in the neighborhood I grew up in, in Princeton, was Paul Robeson, the great singer and diplomat and athlete. And one of the things that he said about his hometown, he, he <clears throat> died in the 1950s and he grew up there in the late 1800s. He called Princeton a place whose, um, whose heart was on Wall Street and whose soul was in a Southern plantation counting house. So the the, the 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 sort of fusion of Wall Street and um, 
American slavery, I think, is is something that we're still continuing to reckon with. Yeah, and the book uh, I found it was by Jonathan Daniel Wales on the deep ties between slavery and Wall Street. He had a book called The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street Slavery and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the book. Um, so you mentioned CRT, critical race theory. Are you part of then of that school? Are you suggesting that that, that school, that way of thinking is correct in its analysis of 19th century America, slavery and capitalism? It's an interesting question, mainly because CRT was never really a school. It, it, it was a group of law professors who started getting together in the late 1980s and early 1990s to talk about work at a legal scholarship at a time when legal scholarship tended not to pay very much attention to race or gender at all. And so they were really interested in thinking about how um, law students could be um, taught in a way that was attentive to issues of race. They came up with a lot of different theories. I happen to be using one of them because I think it actually is useful to me in interpreting the evidence that I have, but I'm not sure that um, it, that anyone involved in the critical race theory movement of the 1980s and 90s would necessarily say that they are part of a school. Um, they tend to. Well, the, the, you were the one who brought it up the, you, you, earlier in the conversation. So you absolutely, know. yeah. I'm 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 borrowing some of the of the theoretical tools that they have. Um, developed and left for us because I think some of them are incredibly useful. And you're implying some probably aren't. Some of them are not really necessarily on point for what I do. In terms of this broader narrative, uh, we all think, of course, of Martin Luther King's famous notion of the arc of justice. Are you challenging that in an odd kind of way? I suppose that if I'm challenging it in any way, it's, it's that I want to think about what's going on behind a statement like that. Um, and you mentioned King, and I think it's a great example because one of, the, one of the things about King is that he has this gift for um, making the, the, what might otherwise seem like pretty mundane uh, you know, challenges to white supremacy. He has a gift for making them seem like a, a sacred duty, uh, like God's work. Um, you know, mm -hmm. people going to, you know, children going to school together, you know, at some level, it's just children going to school together, um, sitting at a lunch counter. In fact, some of the later activists mock him <laughs> for, for spending so much effort, uh, activist effort, on just desegregating things like schools and lunch counters. But he has this gift for lifting up these seemingly mundane struggles into the realm of the sacred. And so for me, part of what I'm trying to do is to, to, to describe that and to show how what once was a set of fairly mundane issues like land ownership, contracts, um, struggles over church property or struggles over the leadership of churches, churches as corporations, all of these things sound kind of mundane. And King kind of 
in lifting up this concept of civil rights into the world of the sacred, especially because he's a man of God, what that does is it, it tempts us to forget the ways in which black people right through the 1960s were intensely interested and had a long history of engaging with those mundane civil rights. And so I'm really interested in both the story that he's telling with a statement like the arc of justice is long, but it the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I'm interested in both what he's saying and also what is getting left behind or covered up by a statement like that. Yeah, you use the word tempt. Uh, uh, temptation, of course, is one of the the metaphors or I don't know, ideologies of, of the Christian church. Are you suggesting we should, so to speak, uh, Dylan, resist that temptation? Not necessarily. I think that we, we need both. In order, sometimes in order for a movement to succeed, we need it to be seen as sacred. We need to believe in it as something sacred. Because after all, one of the meanings of the sacred is that it's bigger than any individual or even bigger than any collection of individuals. That kind of feeling is sometimes necessary because movements sometimes demand impossible things of people. So I don't want to lose sight of that, but I want us also to really think about Black people's history of engagement with law, their mundane engagement, because that's so much a part of what actual Black people cared about from the 1830s through the 1970s. I mean, they cared about things like marriage and divorce. Um, they cared about things like whether a member of a church has rights in that church or just privileges. And they cared very much about um, <clears throat> their control of uh, the labor of their families, because after all, that is that labor is what allows Black people to climb into the ranks of land ownership in the South. And in fact, it's what allows them to achieve the, the, the highest land ownership numbers, 15 million acres, at the time when Jim Crow and lynching and racial violence against black people generally was at its worst around the year 1910. So these paradoxes pile up and these really incredibly fascinating aspects of black life, uh, they, they're very difficult for us to see or even understand if we remain um, within the language of freedom struggle, if we remain committed to the idea that Black history is a story of race relations. Yeah, you seem to be suggesting, Dylan, that, um, that the history of Black liberty is complicated, more complicated than is presented, which is an appropriate time to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics that deals with a lot of these thorny, complicated, and hidden issues in American history uh, and global history as well. I want to thank uh, my friends at Liberties for supporting this show. We're going to run a short uh, ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back to talk more about uh, Black Liberties uh, in, in the America that Dylan uh, Penning-Roth has exposed in his wonderfully important new book. So don't go away, anyone.
Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with uh, Dylan Penningroth, uh, author of Before the Movement, really interesting new book just out. Uh, Dylan, you're presenting America in the 19th century and early 20th century in a much more complicated way than we normally think about it. But the title of the book, Before the Movement, suggests that there was a single movement. Is that fair? Weren't there movements? Historians will always remind us that history is more complicated than we want or like to think. Was there a movement or are you using this as a an opportunity to uh, expose the hidden, it's not just the hidden history, it's the hidden histories of black civil rights? I think that would be fair to say that it's hidden histories uh, before the movement. But I think that the the word the term the movement i chose that carefully because although there had been many movements and of course there were many organizations who participated and pushed forward the black freedom struggle of the 1940s 50s and 60s those who participated in it that mid-century uh, struggle they self-consciously described themselves as being part of something called the movement, sometimes with a capital M. You talk about black rights and property rights, land ownership, coexisting with the disappearance of um, of voting rights. We've, of course, like every show, we've done many shows on that one. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Martha S. Jones uh, has written a wonderful book called The Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote and Insisted on Equality for All on the Importance of Voting, especially for black women. We've done a number of shows on that with people like uh, Martha Jones and, and Carol Anderson. I wonder, um, in your view, Dylan, how this affected the way of thinking of black Americans. On the one hand, they had, as you exposed in your book, property rights, rights, certain kinds of rights under the law, particularly in the post-Civil War America. But at the same time, they didn't have voting rights. How did that impact their sense of politics and indeed uh, constitutionalism in America more broadly in, in a historical sense? How, how, how should that change how we think about how they thought about America? as people like Martha have demonstrated for many African-Americans, what it led to was a feeling of intense frustration. Um, you have one set of rights. Um, you're able to accumulate property. You're able to achieve certain forms of dignity, but you're constantly being humiliated in other spheres of life, getting on trains, not being even allowed on airplanes once those come into wide use. Um, and of course, voting rights, which matter 
not just because the denial amounts to a form of humiliation, but because not being able to vote, of course, means that the system from the federal government down to the county dog catcher is dominated by white people. And it is imbued with an ethos of white supremacy. And so, you know, I think the, the outlook that, you know, many African-Americans have is, is probably a mixture of frustration and just resigned um, acceptance for most of the time, because after all, that's the way things are. But I think there's a kind of pragmatism that goes along with this. Mm. It's that, you know, you, you kind of know that certain there are certain things that you can't do down at the courthouse. And historians have been really good at documenting that. Um, but there were, and this is this is what I'm trying to to uncover, there were a number of other things that African Americans could and did do down at the courthouse. So they went down there to pay taxes. They went down there to look up deeds if they needed to. They negotiated contracts. They and their lawyers, they would have deeds recorded. Um, there were just a number of things that they did at the county courthouse and in other legal spaces around the South and the North. One of the things that I think is really interesting about this is that um, the records that I look at are not marked at all by race. So mm. the court records, you can read a thousand pages of these docket books and you'll never know which ones are black because they're just not marked that way. But if you go one shelf over and you look at the divorce cases or you look at the voter registrations, those are marked by race. They, there's even a separate, in many counties, there's a separate set of books called colored marriages. And then when people file for divorce, the law actually says in these states that the lawyer has to specify the race of the parties who are seeking the divorce. So there are these, there are these areas of law where race matters and the legal um, uh, actors like lawyers and judges and so forth, they typically mark it. But then in these other areas, they don't need to mark it. The law doesn't need to mark it. And so they don't. And that creates all sorts of practical difficulties. Like how do you write a book about black people's contract and property rights if none of those records are marked by race? So that's one set of questions. But then there's another set of questions, which is about what did race actually mean in Mississippi in 1900? And I think my takeaway from, from reading these documents is that the white dominated legal system treated race opportunistically. So they were not colorblind. I mean, that sort of sounds silly to say it about 1900, but we're now living in a country where the Chief Justice of the US Supreme Court is saying that we ought to be colorblind and that is the only way that we can get past race is to treat um, race as if it didn't matter or didn't exist in law. And I, I just think that's so wrong-headed because the law has never been colorblind, but even at the time when the law was the most color conscious, the most discriminatory, the most exclusionary, they didn't systematically mark race in some of the most important documents, the important areas of law that you would expect. And so 
you know, the idea that law should be colorblind now makes no sense in 1900. And it doesn't make sense even today when we have even the modern case books that law students learn from. They have cases involving African Americans, but the case books don't say so because the casebook authors actually don't realize that some of the cases that they're teaching the students actually featured black plaintiffs or defendants. And so, you know, I think there's something important to be done around this issue of colorblindness. Um, but, you know, to take your original point, the, the, the fact that African-Americans couldn't vote matters enormously, again, precisely because voting means political power. It means you're able to get into positions where you can make decisions about the welfare of communities and to decide how race is going to be treated in the legal uh, system that, that, that determines or influences so much of people's lives. Your book gets us to rethink so many of our assumptions, uh, Dylan, as we've already suggested. H how might it get us to rethink this great debate between Booker T. Washington and, 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 and Du Bois, uh, particularly because the world you're describing seems to me to be one that Booker T was very familiar with and might have said, well, that's fine. We can get on with this. This is our world and it's not so bad after all. Booker T. Washington had a public persona that um, that was very much uh, associated with that this idea uh, that he said in his famous 1896 speech, cast down your buckets where you are, bring up fresh water. Um, he was a, a more complicated person than that politically. Um, but I think that the, the, the point that you're making is a good one. You have African-American leaders, uh, Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois, who are pursuing what seem, at least on the surface, to be very different visions of African-American freedom and very different notions of how you get there. Um, but I think that what I've found over and over is that leaders like them, and in fact, leaders going back to Frederick Douglass, they are constantly using what I call these rights of everyday use, the right to make contracts, the right of property, the right to found and inco uh, 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 file incorporation papers uh, to make um, an association into a legal entity, a legal person. And so black people have been engaged with that and activist leaders are very much a part of that world. So from the 1820s right through the 1960s, most of the activist organizations that you can think of are intensely involved in all of these rights of everyday use. They're, they're, they're part of this hidden history of civil rights, even as much of the rhetoric that they are um, engaged in, in public, seems to point in another direction. So there's this, there's this kind of, I don't know if you'd call it, but there's this kind of back and forth going on between the civil rights story that we know and this one that's kind of behind the veil, as it were, or under the surface. And they're very much connected, but it's that other half that I think needs more attention and, and deserves more attention. Well, you're a good historian. You're unveiling it for us. You're speaking of Frederick Douglass. 
another great African-American. Um, we're doing um, a series of interviews with uh, Peter Slen at C-SPAN. They have a new series, C-SPAN, the 10 books that shaped America. Um, and actually, we did an interview yesterday about Douglas's uh, autobiography. Next week, as it happens, and it, 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 it probably appropriate in terms of this conversation, we're doing a a show uh, about the common law, Oliver Wendell Holmes's classic book on American law. Is your thesis, in, 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 a, in an odd way, Dylan, are you saving the law? Are you suggesting that the law in itself, by definition, was and is colorblind and, and, and they can be juxtaposed with political rights? What are you saying? about the law itself, or, or perhaps you're not really saying anything about it. I, I hope I'm saying something about it, but I, I am not saying that the law was colorblind, and I'm certainly not saying that it should be colorblind now. The law in this country has always been um, opportunistically using race. I should explain what I mean by that. Um, if you think about a case uh, say, filed in, in Virginia in um, 1867. Um, you know, say it's a case about duress. Uh, can a, a black man who made a contract to sell land to a white person, can he get out of that promise by saying after the fact that he was forced to do so by a white mob? So I'm actually telling you about a case. It's called Tally versus Robinson's Assignee. It's from Virginia in 18, uh, 1867. And Robinson was a black man who was forced uh, into selling his land, or so he said. That case is decided uh, at the trial level. It's decided in his favor. He's, he's He gets out of the contract. Then on appeal at the Virginia Supreme Court, they say that he needs to be bound by his contract and he has to go through with the sale. And so this white man, Tally, gets to keep the land, uh, take the land that he has purchased at a, 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 a fire sale price, way under market. So this case, um, at the trial level, it has Robinson's race attached to it. It has um, the fact of race, a racial mob, right after the Civil War, intimidating a black man into selling his land. And then when it gets pulled into legal academia, into legal scholarship by none other than Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, he begins to cite this case for an idea about force in contract law that's very useful to him. He wants to go down this path, but he stops mentioning the race of the parties and indeed racial violence drops out of this case altogether. So Tally versus Robinson's assignee, it becomes a you know a, a modestly important case in the development of the law of duress um, in contract law. But if you were to sort of go and look at it today, uh, look at it in in Holmes's writings, you would never know that Robinson was black or that it was a white mob after the Civil War that intimidated him into selling the land. In other words, you wouldn't know one of the probably the most important fact about the case um, because it drops out. Now, did Holmes leave it out because he's a racist? 
I don't think that's a productive question to ask. We know that he was certainly not a racial liberal, um, but I think what's going on is that Holmes left race out of this case because he wanted this case to apply across all cases with similar sorts of facts. And if he had said that it only applies in cases where there's racial violence, it wouldn't have done the work that he wanted it to do. He wanted it to sweep extremely wide. And we see this time after time, judges take cases, strip out facts of race, and then use them to make points that are uh, uh, more sweeping and more important and apply to more people, all Americans, not just uh, black Americans facing racial violence. And so that's what I mean when I say that the law has been treated by the white dominated uh, legal system opportunistically. It's not a case of colorblindness. Whether I'm rehabilitating law, I think what I'd say is that I'm trying to get um, historians, um, African-American historians who, you know, a lot of it has taken place in, in the world of cultural history and social history. I'm trying to show that paying attention to law and indeed, you know, areas of law that might seem kind of mundane and boring, paying attention to law as law can be really important for uncovering what African-Americans were actually doing and thinking and believing over this very long period of time. Final question. This is a fascinating conversation, uh, Dylan. I'm going to bring it up uh, actually with Peter Slan in terms of uh, the common law and, uh, and Holmes uh, next week. What does all this mean for today? You brought up critical racial theory. Race is still enormously controversial inside and outside law schools, inside and outside courthouses, inside and outside the Supreme Court inside and outside Congress and the White House. You, you wrote an interesting piece, uh, I think it was adapted from the book in Lit Harbor and quoting you today, even as many historians remain committed to the idea of scholarship as struggle, they are debating what that struggle actually was and what lessons it holds today. What are the lessons for your book, not for history and not for historians, but for today in October, 2023 in, in in, a, in a, uh, an America which is in, in some ways just as divided as it was in the 19th century? I can point to a couple of lessons I think that are very meaningful to me as I sit here in 2023. Um, one, I think, is that uh, it's really important for us to see the diversity of Black life alongside the commonality of racial oppression. Both of these things matter enormously. There needs to be room in the stories that we tell about African-American communities and minority communities more generally to see diversity, to see that uh, the fact of oppression does not determine um, everything that we need to know about people who are part of those communities. I guess the second thing that I'd say is that the law, when we think about this thing called the law, it isn't just one thing. You know, it's Brett Kavanaugh on the U.S. Supreme Court, but it's also your local judge, uh, your Supreme Superior Court judge. It's also something, the law is something that enables white supremacy, but it also enables forms of oppression within Black communities. And then the third thing I'd say, and maybe this is the most uh, salient to your point, is that um, once we begin to see that African-Americans have this almost 200 year tradition of engaging with law 
at the local level as well as on the national level. Um, I think we need to start asking why. Uh, you know, here's a story where African Americans in an era when lynchings were ubiquitous, um, 1892, for example, the peak of lynching, that's also a time when more African Americans were going to local courts in the South than had ever gone before. It's the peak of Black land ownership. In other words, Black people's use of law in those days could coexist with the most horrific forms of racial violence and oppression. Here we are in 2023. Um, we're looking back on several years of protests that we now associate with the name of George Floyd. And we're thinking very hard about white supremacist violence perpetrated by police and by uh, non-police actors, mobs, white mobs. And if we should be asking ourselves, if African-Americans were willing to engage with law, if in the 1960s they were, many of them, willing to put their faith in the rule of law, we should be asking ourselves, why was that? And I think that question resonates especially loudly because right now we have a former president and a leader of one of the major parties in this country who is opening, openly questioning and trying to weaken our collective faith in the rule of law. 